You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. We're talking today to Alberto Diaz Cayeros, a senior fellow here at FSI and director of Stanford's Center for Latin American Studies. He's a professor by courtesy of political science and is affiliated faculty at FSI's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. His work focuses primarily on federalism, poverty, and economic reform in Latin America, and Mexico in particular. So it's January 27, 2017, and President Trump had a phone call with Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto this morning. This comes after Peña Nieto canceled his planned state visit. Tensions between the U.S. and Mexico have increased over the proposed U.S. border wall, which President Trump insists Mexico will pay for, though he has not specified how this will be enacted. Professor, can you start us off with an analysis of what you think is happening right now? So this is a very challenging times uh, for the U.S.-Mexico relations. Uh, One thing that uh, most people don't realize is how close uh, the two countries have become in the last uh, 10 years. Uh, The relationship between Mexico and the U.S., in my mind, has never been closer. Uh, We cooperate on trade, obviously. Uh, There is an enormous amount of cooperation in uh, questions of national security for the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, the challenge of drug trafficking is not just something that uh, uh, pertains to to the Mexican officials. Uh, it is a risk for the United States. Uh, for the first time in history, in the last 10 years, there's been an enormous amount of cooperation between the militaries of both countries. Uh, there is cooperation at the intelligence front. When Mexico captures a drug trafficker a kingpin, it is usually, it happens because of U.S. Uh, intelligence that is shared with the correct people in Mexico. So, so people don't realize that beyond the kind of things we already know, that the border is so permeable, 100 million people cross, you know, the U.S.-Mexican border, the fact that there is this, you know, incredible thriving trade relationship, there's enormous flows of investment into Mexico from the U.S., uh, there are obviously uh, uh, millions of jobs in the U.S. that depend on this, you know, thriving trade relationship. But beyond all those, in fact, the diplomatic relationship has been very good. And that has been good with Republican and Democratic presidents alike. Um, now, of course, the border with Mexico is also a very contentious uh topic. Uh, the, the, the fact that the border is permeable, that it cannot really stop the flow of illegal merchandise, including drugs from Mexico to the United States, but it also does not stop, for example, illegal guns coming from the U.S. into Mexico. So that is a contentious issue and uh, has been for quite a while. Migration flows, although uh, I have to say the executive order that President Trump just signed Um, misrepresents uh, what has actually happened uh, in the last few years. Uh, Migration from the south to the north is actually not up, although that's what the executive order says. Uh, Migration uh, from Central America has become very notorious because of the unaccompanied minors, which is a response to the challenges a lot of families in Central America face because of drug and criminal violence. Uh, But in fact, the net flow of migration between Mexico and the United States is actually negative right now. There are more people moving from the U.S. into Mexico 
than Mexicans moving into the United States. So, you know, but this is obviously something that became a central point in his in his campaign, and uh, within the you know the rhetoric that a lot of us believed was only rhetoric, uh, we now see that there are actual uh, deeds that are going to accompany this rhetoric. Right. So you pointed out that uh, up until possibly this week, the diplomatic relationship between the U.S. and Mexico was very strong. So. What types of issues are really at stake here for the United States um, if relationships with our southern neighbor take a turn for the worse? So the U.S. obviously has many interests around the world. Its relationship you know, with uh, Europe, with the Middle East, with Asia, uh, with the rest of Latin America, and with Mexico, uh, in a way, keep you know, the U.S. foreign policy in this whole fragmented and very complex relationship with many countries. For Mexico, in some ways, the only country that exists in the world is the U.S. in terms of its diplomatic relations. Of course, Mexico has relations with the rest of Latin America for many years, you know, a bit of a a thorn in the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, side was the fact that Mexico had very good relations with Cuba. But for a, to a large extent, the only thing that Mexican diplomats and Mexican officials are zeroing in is what is going on with the U.S., either the U.S. economy or the U.S., you know, the trade relationship. All these things really move how the Mexican economy does. If the U.S. does well, Mexico does well. For the U.S., on the other hand, as I said, there's this there's very this complex and diverse set of interests and um, and uh, geopolitical imperatives around the world, but just on the economic uh, front, what has happened over the last 10, 20 years is that many industrial sectors in the U.S., for example, car production, have become deeply integrated with a manufacturing chain that connects the U.S., the Canadian, and the Mexican manufacturers. Um, Detroit might lose jobs because there's some things, some parts of that process that are too expensive to do in Detroit and they are done in Mexico. But at the same time, there's other processes that are being done elsewhere in the United States or in Canada that are part of this whole production chain. That sector is a fully integrated sector of the three nations where it's very difficult to say whether a car that has a Ford label or a you know, General Motors label is actually made in the US or in Mexico or in Canada. It is made by the three countries. This kind of story is not just in cars. It exists in places which are, you know, unexpected. Uh, Mexico produces right now some of the most important, uh, some of the most, uh, 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 it's a very important producer of all the uh, medical instruments, um, simple things like braces, etc. But they're produced by American companies in Mexico, and they obviously benefit, you know, uh, hospitals throughout the country that can get these materials cheaper than they would get them if they were done in the in the U.S. Or let me give you a third example, which is more sort of unexpected: uh, drones. Uh, many of the drones that are sold in the U.S. are actually manufactured in Mexico, again by American companies that do a lot of the research. The the technological part is being done by American engineers in the U.S. And then a lot of the manufacturing and a lot of the engineering, but simpler aspects of the production process are being done in Mexico. 
And all these sectors are sectors that are no longer simply, uh, in a way, it's, it's a big simplification to think, oh, we just have to buy American. What does it mean to buy a Ford? A Ford is actually a car which is American and Canadian and Mexican. So we're talking about NAFTA, <laughs> essentially. <Yes. laughs> so, of course, the biggest, biggest story, I think, that I have seen in my last 20 years as a, as a scholar and also as a binational citizen of both countries is that NAFTA has brought enormous benefits, particularly to the Mexican economy. There's no question about it. But because the U.S. is such a big country, the effects on the U.S. are small, but significant. They exist. We don't notice them except when we buy an avocado mm -hmm. that is no longer, you know, $4 a piece, but now $1 a piece. Uh, and that's when we notice that there's trade. Mm -hmm. uh, the story I would tell people that um, I was very struck by visiting my hometown, my, my father's, the town where my father was born, it's a town in central Mexico. Right now, most of the lands of this town uh, that were you know, it's a very nice valley that was really not doing very well the last 10 years. Today is full of greenhouses producing raspberries for the U.S. market. This agro-industry is thriving. The town is, you know, full of activity. All of this produce is coming into the United States. It allows Americans to have cheap raspberries in the market, high quality, you know, well-produced. And of course, this town lives from the benefits of free trade, which, you know, some years ago, people were very worried. The agricultural sector is going to do so poorly with NAFTA. Mexican corn growers will not be able to compete against the mechanization of corn growers in, in Iowa. Well, it turns out that Mexican growers found other alternatives. And I wouldn't be surprised if we find that a lot of these greenhouses in my father's hometown are actually joint ventures, which include American, Canadian, and Mexican investors. So this is the nature of the economies of North America. And I think that is something that we have not really appreciated. I want to come back to another statement you made uh, that might surprise people who haven't thought too much about uh, the dual nature of the relationship between U.S. and Mexico. Uh, the, the stakes here for Mexico, if the United States turns away from Mexico as a primary partner, uh, does Mexico look elsewhere for its diplomatic relationships? You, know, you mentioned that for Mexico in many ways, the U.S. is its only neighbor or a major part of how it makes its, how it builds its future. Uh, does Mexico look somewhere else for partners uh, in the wake of something like this? So Mexico is in a very, very tough position right now. Um, we have, as a country, a, as a Mexican, Everything is at stake. Um, if the U.S. imposes a tariff on Mexican exports to the United States, or if uh, it becomes much uh, more difficult for people who commute to work across the border, uh, a lot of people in Mexico will suffer. Uh, the economy will tank. There will be an economic downturn. Uh, there is no question that you know anything that limits this mobility and this flow of resources and people across the Mexico-U.S. border will harm Mexico and the Mexican economy very deeply. The, the other side of it, however, is that as Mexico suffers, uh, there will be 
greater temptation, for example, for a young unemployed man in his 20s to look for some economic activities that might be doing better than my example of the raspberries. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of the kids that are now working in the raspberry fields will look for employment in the poppy fields or in the marijuana fields, and they will also become part of this criminal network, which is a logistics enterprise, business enterprise, which no matter how tough and how you know impenetrable and tall the wall to be constructed might be, they will keep on flowing into the United States. As long as there is this incredibly profitable market, that will still be an economic activity that is important in Mexico. It is an illegal activity. The Mexican government has worked and cooperated with the United States to crack down on these organizations because they are also threatening the Mexican government itself. Uh, but the truth is that if there is this economic downturn, a lot of young men might actually be employed by these criminal organizations, and that is not going to be good for the United States. So I am sorry that I'm pushing back towards the U.S. Uh, perspective, but I think this is something that a lot of uh, voters in the United States have not appreciated, that a thriving Mexico is actually a very good thing for the United States, and uh, that this is not really a zero-sum game. Uh, the things that the U.S. Uh, can do to improve the conditions of its working class, of a lot of the people that felt disenfranchised, who felt that they had no voice in the current economic uh, environment and that they had no future, well, those things that can benefit them might include Mexico as part of their partnership, not necessarily exclude it. And that is something that I think both the Mexican government and a lot of people in the United States have to articulate in a more uh, systematic way. So speaking of the Mexican government, um, President Peña Nieto faced very deep political opposition mm -hmm. at home for his outreach to President Trump, both before when he was a candidate and uh, after the election. Uh, is President Peña Nieto a bit boxed into a corner here? What options does he have available in this so situation? The really, the really complicated problem is that the Mexican president has to come into any renegotiation of NAFTA or any agreement that will be reached about the border, about the binational relationship, he has to arrive there with some position of strength. Um, in some ways, the, the image that I have been trying to put forward is comes from Sherlock Holmes, but it's really from game <laughs> theory, um, in which Sherlock Holmes cannot really defeat Moriarty until this final scene where he is fighting with him at the edge of a precipice and there's this waterfall and Sherlock Holmes is willing to fall into the waterfall in order to defeat Moriarty. Of course, the US doesn't want to fall and Mexico doesn't want to fall in a precipice. But the big dilemma is that the Mexican president has to signal that there's such a huge stake in this moment that he's willing to go all for it and that kind of goes back to the question when you were asking, you know, what does Mexico, what can Mexico do? Mexico does have to give signals, for example, that it's willing to make closer ties with China. It doesn't mean that we will have a country that, you know, puts its whole future on the relationship with China. What Mexico wants is a tighter relationship with the U.S. 
But the paradox is that in order to convince the current administration of how willing Mexico is to play everything, they should be willing to visit China and, you know, have state visits and have, you know, nice state dinners with the presidents of China and the president of ja- and the prime minister of Japan and the Korean uh, sort of uh, reach out to Brazil, reach out, why not, even to Venezuela or to Cuba mm-hmm. and signal in some ways that Mexico will be able or will be willing to play a very tough bargaining position, but not because Mexico does not want to reach an agreement. It is because it needs to arrive to this bargaining table with some chips Mm -hmm. to play from the very beginning. Um, And it is a very paradoxical situation in which Mexico finds itself. The Mexican president did the right thing by um, refusing to come to the US. Uh, Trump, President Trump has made that career in his life as a businessman in this kind of negotiations, bargaining, posturing, uh, bravado, trying to demonstrate that he's tougher than the other one. And the Mexican government, I think it is sinking into them that they have to respond in kind if they're going to get to some reasonable deal with the United States. So uh, to, to follow up on that and to, and to, to finish out uh, our interview, the, uh, the Mexican president's office uh, said after the phone call this morning that in a statement that both presidents recognize their clear differences on this sensitive issue, which of course is uh, diplomatic language for we're very far apart mm-hmm. right now. Given the position that we're in, the variables that we have, the leadership that we have, is there a path forward to keep this relationship peaceful, productive, prosperous? Yes. So I, I think one of the nice uh, aspects of democracies and uh, really, you know, one of the incredible things of living under a system with balance of powers and with a lot of checks and balances on presidential power on both the Mexican and the American side is that a lot of what happens next is not going to depend on the presidents. I think on the one hand, the business community has to get together. We need to have powerful businessmen on not just Mexico and the US, but also Canada, who have a lot of interest in getting this relationship to thrive. And we should be promoting ways in which this business, uh, these companies can put forth their case, that they can explain what NAFTA means for them. Second one, which I think is very clear, is that um, the U.S. uh, political establishment is not very happy with these executive orders. There's a lot of congressmen and senators, congresswomen on both sides of the aisle that in many ways would like to deepen their ties to Mexico. And Mexico in many ways has an opportunity right now to try to reach out to them and try to make a case for why they need congressional protection Uh, on these agreements, because NAFTA cannot be erased with the stroke of a pen. It requires congressional action, and there are allies of Mexico in the legislature. Um, Finally, what I would say is that uh, in many ways we we have this um, symbolic aspect about the wall. The wall is this image that has become either on the Mexican side, it has unified Mexicans against it, Uh, On the campaign trail for for then-candidate Trump, it was something that unified a lot of his supporters with a simple scapegoat of where, you know, the problems come from. 
we should be working on a completely different image of what the reality of the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. looks like. Uh, Mexico, you know, is uh, a modern country. Uh, a lot of the images that we get are usually of the of the poor Mexican trying to cross the border instead of getting the image of this thriving middle class of a sense of all these families, for example, that are part of what moves the border, you know, by coming back and forth. We need to show these images, uh, for example, of solar panels, of, um, you know, the, the world as it could be of the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. And why not? You know, it is already happening. Uh, beer companies are showing these corona images. And this is the kind of images that I think have to play a role in the way we imagine the other. Uh, right now, the other uh, is very alien, very far away. And we don't want to see this as actually uh, the friends that the U.S. and Mexico have become over these past few decades. All right. Well, that will wrap up our interview for today. Professor Alberto Diaz-Cayeros, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. And uh, we hope that some of, your, uh, some of your predictions of a strong resolution will come true. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.